So let me introduce myself. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm excited today about the, the kickoff to a brand new series called Stop Going to Church. You're like, well, wait a minute, we're already here. <laughs> how, how, do we, how do we stop going if we're already here? And as you might could imagine, as, as, as Joe, our, our bass player today, Joe, he said, I'm waiting to see what the, I'm, I'm waiting to see what the, how you flip it. Like, what's the flip? Because I know you're not going to tell people to stop going to church. And he's right. Like Joe, Joe and I have been together for a long time, so he knows me. And he's right. And, of course, as a pastor and as a church, we're not going to tell you to, to stop coming to this location to worship with us. But here's what we will tell you to stop. We want you to stop going to church, and we want you to start being the church. And being the church starts with belonging to the church because here's, here's the big idea that's going to frame out our, our entire series together. You're, we're probably going to repeat this every single week, so you might want to commit it to memory. Maybe next week we say it together to be like a pop quiz at church because who don't like quizzes? Right? But this is going to be the big idea that frames out our, our whole time together throughout this series, and it's this. The church was never intended to be something you attend but something to which you belong. Just coming to this building on a week and sitting in these seats and singing these songs, listening to this guy, that's not, that's not what God had in mind when he instituted this thing that we know to be the church. That the church was something that we, that we should belong to, something we should be a part of. It's a living, breathing organism. And you've heard us say this a hundred times. The church isn't a place. The church is the people. It's, it's the people, it's the, the children of God that make up the family of God that is the church. The church is never something that you were supposed to just attend, but something to which you were supposed to belong. And that's what we're going to talk about throughout this series. And we're going to do so through the lens of, of the core values of, of Fusion City Church specifically. Because we believe if you're going to belong here, if you're going to belong to this church, then you need to know what we believe and the core values of who we are as a church. The things that we say we must agree on in order for us to be part of the same church family. And so for this week and for the next two weeks, uh, we're going to look at the core values of Fusion City Church. Stop me if you've heard them before. Actually, don't stop me because I know you've heard them before. But the core values of Fusion City Church are to love God, to love people, and to do what? And to serve the world. All right, three of you, awesome. So love God, love people, and serve the world. Those are the three core values of the church. And today we're going to start by talking about why we as Fusion City Church, why we as people who belong to Fusion City Church believe that we should Love God. So I, my, my purpose for today's message is, is, is kind of twofold because I know that we have a lot of people here at different points in their journey of faith. And maybe you came today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't really know about this whole God thing that if he's even real and if he's there, what kind of God he is. Maybe you're kind of kicking the tires on the whole church thing. And, man, we're super glad that, that you felt safe enough to come and to trust us to, to help you along that journey. So today, I'd like to give you, if that's you, I'd like to give you the reasons that I think you should love God. I'm going to give you a great reason to love God this morning. Again, making the assumption that you believe that he's real. Well, I understand that's a pretty big assumption, but that's where I'm going to operate. Proving that God exists, that's another message for another day. All right, we'll, we'll get to that. And if, you, if that's where you are, if you're not sure if God is real, could I, could I encourage you to do this? I'd love to have that conversation with you. About why you do or why you about why you don't. So you can email me, Brian at fusioncitychurch.com. We'll set up a coffee. We'll go hang out. We'll go get some French Express coffee, sit down and talk about 
why I believe God exists, and you can tell me why you don't, you don't think that he does. We, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But for today, I'm going to operate under the assumption that he is real, and I want to give you a reason that I think you should love him. Now, for others of us in here, we've, we've had a relationship with God. We love and trust Jesus, and my hope is that this message today would serve as a reminder to you of all the reasons, or the one maybe big reason, that, that we should be excited about our faith and excited that we have this relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus, His Son. We're going to talk about today what it is that makes God so lovable. And if I'm, if I'm, if I'm being careful to explain it the right way, I think that as we press into the reasons that God is lovable, it, it encourages us to want to believe. Because here's the truth for, for me, and if you're not a Christian yet, I hope you don't take offense to this. But if you're not a Christian, why would you not want Christianity to be true? I don't understand why anyone would not want it to be true. Now, let's understand together. There's a big difference between believing that it's true and wanting it to be true. Uh, the, the famous philosopher Blaise Pascal said this. He said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. In other words, what he was saying is that when something is so attractive, we will go looking for reasons to believe that it's true. If it looks good, then I want it to be true. And my argument as it pertains to our Heavenly Father is that he is so attractive, that you should want his story and what we believe here at Fusion City Church to be true. Now, I'm not arguing that because it's attractive, therefore it's true. That's not what I'm arguing. That's not what Pascal was arguing. But what I am arguing is that at the very least, you should want it to be true. And I believe that if I can convince you today to want it to be true, that you'll go find all the other reasons to prove that it really is. The Bible tells us that those who seek, find. And I believe that if I can get you to seek, then you're going to find and know the truth. And there's one word, there's one word that makes God so attractive for me. The, the, the main, there's lots of words. But there's one, if I could single out one, it would be this one. And the word is grace. Grace is what makes God so attractive. You see, whether you knew how to put language to it or not, at the time when you were most busted, grace is what you wanted, right? Because grace, here's, here's a definition that we're going to work with of grace, one definition. Grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. Here's what it looks like. You come home late, you're a teenager. You come home late, and your parents are waiting up for you. And they've found it, whatever it is. And they've got it laid out on the table there in front of them. You got no way out. There is no, oh, no, nah, that's my sister's. None of that. Like you, you're just caught. You're busted and your mind starts to reel and you begin to process through all of the things that they can take away and all of the things that they should take away. You're caught, you're busted, and you know it. And in that moment, whether you knew what to define it as or not, 
grace is what you wanted. Husbands, wives, you come home late. Your spouse is waiting up for you. Or, or your boss walks in and they just lay it all out. And in that moment, you know, I'm caught. I'm busted. And the only hope in that moment is for the thing that we deserve the least. Because that's what grace is. Grace is, is undeserved. Here's a, a better working definition. Grace is unearned, undeserved, unearnable favor. It's, it's the thing that we don't deserve that God gives. And the thing about grace is that the moment that you think you deserve it, you've lost it. The minute that you believe that you deserve grace, you've lost it. You can no more deserve grace than you can plan your own surprise party. Grace has to be undeserved, has to be unexpected. The minute, the minute that you feel like it's owed to you, you've lost it. We cannot, you can write this down, we can't recognize or experience grace for what it is until we are convinced that we don't deserve it. That is the nature of grace. And grace can only be experienced in the context of a relationship of which you, where there is an imbalance and you are on the negative side of the imbalance. That there is something that I have done because of my behavior or something that I said or something that, that somebody found out that I did where there is an imbalance where I have been caught, I'm busted, and I am on the negative side of the imbalance. Grace can only be experienced in the context of a relationship. It has to be experienced relationally. And in order for God to make his grace known to us, because it has to be relatable, because it has to be experienced through the dynamics of a relationship, God became one of us, in the form of God the Son, Jesus. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Christmas is just around the corner. It's coming way too fast. We're already into September. The 2019, like, fly by for anybody else. I can't believe we're this close. It's almost cold, y'all. Almost. We, we ain't there yet. It's a little warm in here this morning. But that's, that's what we celebrate when we get to Christmas time is, is God becoming one of us, coming to us so that we can experience the relatable nature of God. And you, you can write this down, another note. We cannot, or I'm sorry, we would have never known the grace of God without the presence of God. We would have never known the grace of God without him becoming one of us because grace is experienced relationally. And what we can know of grace, what we can learn of grace, we see in the person of Jesus. In this past session of our Connect Groups, we've been working through the Gospel of John together and having conversations about a chapter a week in the Gospel of John. And at one point during this last session, we encountered John chapter 14, where Jesus is having an interaction with some of the disciples. And they're like, hey, Jesus, we want to know what God is like. We want to know what the Father is like. We want to know how he interacts and what he thinks and how he is. Could you, could you show us the Father? And Jesus is like, look here. You're looking at him. If you want to know what God is like, he's like me. 
And the way that God interacts with humans is the way that I interact with humans. And the way that I love people, that's the way that God, the Father, loves people. If you want to know what God is like, look at me, Jesus said. And what I find so interesting about that is we enter into this, this idea of what it means to love God. Is that all throughout the Gospels, we see encounter after encounter after encounter of Jesus with people where he extends the most remarkable demonstrations of grace. Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. And then he showed us this unearned, undeserved, unearnable favor to so many people. And then put the exclamation point on it. By saying, this is how God loves you, the same way that I have. I think it's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records his own story. See, Jesus and his disciples were, were traveling, and they come upon Matthew, who was a tax collector. Now, if you've heard, I've talked about this a couple of times, but if you haven't been with us, a little bit of background on tax collectors. These were the most hated people in all of society. They were taking taxes from their own people, stealing, greedy, in a lot of cases, lining their own pockets, and then paying taxes to the Roman Empire. Like, that's how everything worked. They were the most hated. It was like the IRS on steroids. It's, we can't even relate in our modern context to how hated tax collectors were. When you read through Scripture, right, tax collectors and sinners are... are it, they're out in their own separate category. Like tax collectors were so bad, they the sinners didn't want the tax collectors lumped in with them. Don't call me a tax, call me a sinner. Don't call me a tax collector. Like, that's the worst of the worst of the worst. And so here Jesus is with his, his, his following, right? All of the disciples are following Jesus, and they come across Matthew. And Jesus comes up to Matthew, and he leans down to Matthew and he says, Follow me. I just get in my head when understanding that the context of this encounter, how hated tax collectors were. As you read through this in the scriptures, you can almost hear or feel the audible gasp like, did he just ask, did a rabbi just ask a tax collector, the scum of the earth, to follow him? I almost, I don't. Scripture doesn't record this for us, but I almost, in my head, knowing Peter's demeanor, I almost see Peter, like, walk up, put his hand on Jesus. Hey, Jesus, like, like not him, bro. Like, if, we, if you ask this guy to follow you, we're going to lose the crowd. You got, a, you got a good following going on here. We got a couple hundred people following you here. Jesus, like, let's not include this guy. It's going to ruin your reputation. And Jesus is like, shut up, Peter. He's come, where he's coming with us. And then Matthew's like, well, all right, I'm coming with you. Where are we going? And Jesus is like, oh, we're going to your house. Peter or Matthew, we're going to go to your house. I want you to bring all your buddies and I want, I want to meet them too. Matthew's like, my friends? The tax collectors? You want to hang out with me and all my friends. Jesus, you're not going to like my friends because my friends are nothing like you. And you're nothing like my, you're not going to like my friends. He's like, no, no, bring them on. This is the Brian Duncan paraphrase of the Matthew story, if you had not figured that out yet. So, so they get to Matthew's house, right? And, and Jesus is there, and it is the most awkward situation 
ever because you got a rabbi who's supposed to be holy and righteous and all these things eating with the worst of the worst of the worst. And on the other side of the room, you got Peter and John and Andrew and Bartholomew and all these guys and they're hanging out and they don't want to be there because it's ruining their reputation. So you got a group of guys that don't want to be there, a group of guys that feel like they shouldn't be there, and Jesus right in the middle. And the Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders, the religious elite guys, that they were responsible for interpreting and disseminating the, the law of Moses to the Israelites, the people, to the Jewish people. They get wind of, of Jesus who's entered into the rabble, and they show up. And this is what Matthew records about his story of dinner with Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, see how they're separated out, right? Why does your master, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the Pharisees weren't about to go into the meal. They're not going into where those dirty, horrible people are. So uh, they send a messenger, one of Jesus' followers, in to deliver to the message. And, and I have in my mind that as this messenger comes into Jesus, that, that they, they offered the Pharisees' question loud enough for all of Matthew and his friends to hear it. Like, hey, Jesus, the Pharisees are here, and they want to know why you eat with all the tax collectors and sinners. Almost as if to shame them. You know what I mean? I just kind of get that picture in my head, right, wrong, or different. That's how I read it. And I think Jesus answered equally as loud so that Matthew and all of his friends could hear his response. And this was Jesus' response, Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, don't call Matthew and his friends sinners. You may hurt their feelings. No. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus wasn't concerned with their, their feelings. Look at what he actually said, Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Now, put, put, your, put yourself in Matthew's shoes. Wait, 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 wait. The sick. Jesus, you're at my house. Did you just call me and all of my friends sick? Jesus is like, yeah, you are sick. You're a traitor. You're stealing from your own people. Matthew, you are a tax collector. You are the worst of the worst of the worst. But I still want you to follow me. Jesus, no, 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 no. You're mixing up all the categories. See, if you're a rabbi and you want people to follow you, then you need to find people who are like you to follow you. Jesus, I'm nothing like you. My friends are nothing like you. And if you're going to ask people who are not like you to follow you, that means that I either have to become like you or you're going to become like me because you can't ask people who are not like you to follow you when they're not like you. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I know what you've done. I know who you are. And I want you to follow me. And then, he, and then Jesus, I love, 
when you're a Bible nerd like me, you start to find humor in places in Scripture that you might not find it otherwise. And here's one of those places in verse 13, because Jesus is going to throw a jab or a dig at the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees thought they were the smartest people on the planet. They knew the law better than anybody. They had it memorized. And when you tell somebody who is supposed to be the most learned people in the world to go and learn something, that is saying, you think you're smart, but I'm smarter than you. So let me tell you what I know that you don't know. And that's what Jesus says in verse 13. Jesus says, but go and learn what this means, he says to the Pharisees. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I'm not afraid to call a sinner a sinner. And I'm not afraid to go to their house for dinner. We're going to wrap it out. I'm not afraid to call a sinner a sinner. And I'm not afraid to go to his house for dinner. You see, Jesus didn't water down the truth of Matthew's sin. But he didn't water down the grace either. See, Jesus' grace matches the truth in your sin. It doesn't matter where you are or what you've done. Jesus says, come and follow me. I've not come, I've not come to call the righteous. Because it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. There's another encounter that we read about in the Gospel of John. Jesus is coming up the Temple Mount, and the Pharisees have, have been waiting for this moment. Jesus gets there where he's at the epicenter of the holiness of God. He, he's at the temple. You got the Holy of Holies over there, and the, the word, the law of God, and Moses is behind there. And you got the you've got the, the sacrifices of animals going on over here. Like they're in the epicenter of God's presence and everything that is known to be righteous and holy. And Jesus is headed up the stairs to the temple, and the Pharisees come out and they've caught a woman in the very act of adultery, the scriptures tell us. And they, I just, I believe they probably held her there all night and waited for this moment for Jesus to arrive. And they bring her out and they present her to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, you know the law that's right over there. We can go and read it and we can check it if you, want to, if you want to verify. But the law of Moses says that we're supposed to stone her. Jesus, what do you say? Jesus, this is so brilliant. That's how we know this stuff isn't made up. That's how I know scripture is true. You couldn't make this stuff up. Jesus, so brilliant, says this. Go ahead. Kill her. Stone her. Do what the law says. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the woman because Jesus didn't ask any questions, right? No, let me hear your story. No, tell me your circumstance. None of that. Jesus said, oh, you want to stone her? Go ahead. Oh, but wait, 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 wait. Before you do, before you do. The one of you who has no sin has to throw the first stone. And then he begins to, he bends down and he writes in the dirt. If you want to read a really interesting debate, go Google what scholars believe that Jesus was writing in the dirt. I think he was writing, it takes one to know one, right? And then John records for us that, that one by one, the oldest to the youngest, I think the old guys kind of grabbed the young ones by the shoulders. Like, come on, young man, he got us again. Let's go. It's like they begin to leave. And then Jesus kneels down to the woman. And he gets eyeball to eyeball with her in the moment where he's just saved her life. And then he ruins the moment. He ruins it. There's, here's this compassionate, I've just rescued you, I've saved you, you moment. And Jesus looks this woman right in the eye and he ruins the moment. And he says, go 
and leave your life of sin. Wait, 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 wait. You, you, just, you just set me free from the, constant, from, from, the, from the judgment of my sin. I was supposed to be sent. You're like, oh, no, no, no. So, so which is it? Am I, am I free from the condemnation of my sin or am I a sinner? Yes. Yes. You are both. You are a sinner who is not condemned because that's grace. That's grace. That is the undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor of God. And Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. And this is what he did. He acknowledged this woman's sin and then sent her on her way with the directive to sin no more. That's grace. Over and over and over we see in Scripture that Jesus leans in towards, presses in towards the pre-repentant sinner. Acknowledges their sin all while asking them to follow him. And then maybe the most impressive demonstration of grace ever was at Jesus' crucifixion. And the Scripture tells us that Jesus was led away with two other men to be crucified. And this is the account for me that puts the amazing in front of grace. Look with me at Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. The first century politicians and religious leaders had decided that these men were too dangerous to leave alive. They were to be executed. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, no details are given here about what crucifixion was. You want to know why? Because everybody that was reading Luke's account of this would have known what crucifixion looked like. They would have seen one. They would have been able to smell it and witness it. They They didn't need any description. They knew all too well the grotesque nature of this type of execution. So Luke just says, crucified. Verse 35, the people stood watching. I've read this verse a thousand times in my life. And this week, this this jumped off the page at me. People, this was a spectator event. The people stood there watching three men go through the worst type of pain imaginable, waiting for them to take their last breath, almost so they could... Celebrate. People stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. We jump down to verse 39. One of the criminals gets in on the, on the insults. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And here's what you have to know about crucifixion. It took a lot, of, a lot of strength and energy to, to muster yourself up, to raise yourself up on the peg in your feet, to inhale and take a breath. So there were probably minutes between these interactions. It was very, very painful and very difficult to breathe and, and excruciating to speak. The other criminal speaks up. The other criminal rebuked him, verse 40. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished 
justly, for we are getting what our deeds what? Deserve. We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Here's what he's saying. If the kingdom of God is for good people, if it is for people who have done right and the people who get it right every single time, then we are not worthy. We don't deserve it. We have no hope of ever experiencing the kingdom of God if it's for good people. His only hope was in the very thing that he deserved the least. And what he had extended very little of to other people in his life to have found himself in the condition that he's in. Then he said, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wait, 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 wait. Is this guy really repenting from a cross? I mean, is he really rededicating his life from the cross? Like, hey, Jesus, I promise to be good from now on. From now on is like 30 minutes and you can't even go anywhere. Like, is this man really rededicating and repenting from the cross? I just can't imagine. The people who were there standing and watching, can you imagine? Like, what they're thinking, like, seriously? Are you going to apologize now? You ain't even got time to make up for all the stuff you did. But look at Jesus' response. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah, we can clap for that. Jesus, once again, disturbs the order of things. Here is the man, so dangerous he can't be left alive under the penalty of the cross, repenting and rededicating from the cross. And Jesus says, you're going to have the same eternity as Stephen who's going to be martyred for his faith in me. You're going to have the same eternity as Peter who's followed me for the last three and a half years. Let me ask you this question. Does Jesus hear the prayers of sinners? Yes. Because that's the only type of prayers there are. That's what makes grace so amazing. That's why you should love God. Why would Jesus do this? Why did he do it? Because like life, grace is not fair. Grace isn't fair. It disturbs the order of things. It is that which is undeserved. It's that which is unearned. It is that when you think you deserve it, you've lost it. You can't do anything to earn it. It's given freely and it's given by a heavenly father that loves you so much that he would extend to you the thing that you deserve the least. This thing called grace. Grace is not fair. It's better than fair. Grace is better than fair. 
After the resurrection, right, Jesus, he's crucified, he goes into the tomb. Three days, he's there, he comes back. After the resurrection, Jesus just keeps the grace train rolling, right? He looks at Peter, who denied him. The Bible tells us that Peter denied even knowing Jesus when he was being crucified. Like a 12-year-old little girl is like, hey, Peter, aren't you, weren't you one of the guys that followed him? And Jesus is like, no, he's scared. Or Peter is like, no, he's scared of a 12-year-old little girl asking him about his relationship to Jesus. He's terrified, denies Jesus' existence. And then Jesus after the resurrection, comes to Peter. He says, hey, Peter, check this out. I'm putting you in charge of the whole thing. Like, whoa, 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 Jesus, don't you know what I've done? Yeah, and I want you to leave this thing because you know grace better than anybody. And then months or years, we don't, timeline's a little bit, there's lots of debate about the timeline, but at some time later, Jesus appears to, to Saul of Tarsus. We know him as the Apostle Paul, who wrote over about half or a little over half of our New Testament. He appears to Saul of Tarsus, who's trying to single-handedly snuff out and kill off the Jesus movement. And Jesus shows up to Saul, changes his name, and lets him write half of the New Testament. No one was less deserving than Paul. That's why Jesus gave him such a platform, because he knew grace better than anybody. Jesus, over and over and over, demonstrates the fullness of his grace and mercy in light of and in full view of our sin. If you needed a reason to love God, that's a pretty good one. As preachers, I think, we, at least for me, I tend to shy away from preaching or even using John 3.16 because it feels like low-hanging fruit. Like everybody's heard it and everybody knows it. Like if you're going to be a good preacher, you got to preach stuff that people ain't ever heard before and teach them something they didn't know. But can we just for a moment, can we, for, can we just put, can I put that verse up, Justin? Can we just relish in the truth and the power, the reason that this verse is so famous and this, everybody's heard it and everybody knows it and it's on sign at football games is because of the profound truth encapsulated in one verse. And this is what it says. It says that for God so, that's not like a little bit of love, but he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then in the very next verse, he echoes everything we've been talking about today. He says this, For God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's grace. That's grace. Jesus didn't come to make you feel bad about all the stuff that you get wrong. He didn't come to point out your sin and say, look what you've done. Rub your nose in it and tell you how bad you are. Jesus came to let you know that regardless of how bad you are, that he still loves you, that he still wants you to follow him, and that he wants you to have the same eternity as Peter and Stephen and the guy on the cross. That's that's, that's grace. That's grace. It's what makes God so lovable. That it doesn't matter your past. And I said at the onset, if you're still trying to figure this thing out and you're still kicking the tires on church and you don't know about this whole God thing or the Jesus stuff, if you needed a reason to love him, might I suggest to you 
Because he's gracious. Because he knows your sin and loves you anyway. You have the choice as to whether or not you respond to that. So in this moment, I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads, close your eyes. And if even for the very first time today, you would say, God, my life hasn't been one that's been very honoring to you. But God, I've heard today, and if it's true, I believe that you love me in spite of everything I've done, for all the mistakes I've made, even those things, God, I thought I couldn't share with anybody. God, I believe that, that you forgive me of that. Because I've seen how your son responded to those that were in the worst places of their life. And God, I believe that that's the same way that you respond to me in the worst place of mine. So Father, today I put my faith, my hope, and my trust, not in my ability to earn it or deserve it, but in the grace that's so freely offered from your hand to my life. For those of us in the room today that have had a relationship with God for a while now, God, I pray that as we do our best to become the type of church that looks the most like you, God, I pray that you would help us to love the same way that you love. Father, I pray that you would challenge us to be honest about our sin so that your grace can meet us full on. God, if we water down the truth of our sin, God, that all that does is water down the grace that's available. So, Father, would you challenge us to embrace the fullness of the ways that we fall short, that we might experience the fullness of the grace that's offered from you through Jesus, your son. And Father, help us be the kind of church that extends that same grace to all that would seek to be part of this body. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the hope that we have through him. It's in his name I pray. Amen.